Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with Social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with Social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Jason Kopchak, President, CEO, and Director of AltaSource Asset Management, publicly traded company. The symbol is AAMC on the NYSE American. AltaSource Asset Management Corporation is a leading boutique alternative asset manager that is focused on building platforms in the multi-trillion dollar alternative asset space. The company has built several businesses that originate and source bespoke credit secured by various types of real estate on behalf of money managers, insurance companies, large institutions, and funds. AAMC also has an asset management company that has a deep history across various types of credit, real estate, distressed housing, and mortgages. AAMC has been included as part of the Planet Microcap Index for two quarters in a row. And in the last quarter alone, Q1 2023, the stock increased about 221%. I invited on Jason to better understand AAMC's value proposition, as well as how interest rates have impacted the business, what measures need to be taken in order to scale AAMC further, how Jason has leveraged his experience from his time at Nomura and Morgan Stanley, and where he'd like to see the company in three to five years. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Kopchak, President, CEO, and Director of AltaSource Asset Management. Jason, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good, good. Bobby, thanks for the intro. Pleasure pleasure to have me on today. Thank you. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. So I've been following AM, AAMC a little bit here and there. Um, the company was actually just recently in our index that, that we use to track microcaps from Q1 2023. So came up on my radar a bit more, as well as some other folks who I've interviewed over the years have, uh, have, have been following the name too. So, you know, thank you again for taking the time and, you know, I'm excited to learn a bit more here. So my first question that I want to ask you to kind of kick things off, you know, what would you say is that one line that best describes AltaSource? So, so AMC, which is Alta Source Asset Manager, the one line is an originator of private credit. It's pure and simple. 
Originator and distributor of private credit. Pure and simple. I love it. All right. So let's get into the history a little bit. So when was the company founded? And then what would you say was the original thesis for its founding? Yeah, no, I think, look, Bobby, that's a great question. The company was a spun out out of Aquin. So, so Aquin was well known as one of the early movers in the in the servicing of non, um, non-agency mortgages. And they're typically they were a pioneer. AAMC was the actual asset manager. So, so again, the company's DNA was in asset management of credit in real estate. Um, it was spun out in 2012, went public, New York Stock Exchange. From that early days, they, they started acquiring NPLs, non-performing residential mortgages. So AMC, run at the time by Ashish Pandey, great, great guy. Um, their staff bought approximately $4 billion in non-performing residential mortgages. So we have a whole team in Bangalore, India, that has phenomenal experience acquiring defaulted mortgages during the crisis. So they understood, they learned quickly, learn how to value and asset manage non-performing residential mortgages. And so all the mistakes made in 2006, seven, eight, and prior, this group saw those mistakes firsthand. They had to manage it. They had to deal with that. So it's a tremendous level of experience in our team in Bangalore. Ashish retired around 2013 or so. They brought in a gentleman named George Ellison. He pivoted the company to more of a single family resident SFR strategy. So the Ariota rental strategy, invitation homes and so on. So George and his team pivoted the company from NPLs to an REO to rental strategy. So over the next, say, five or so years, they purchased around 15, I think 14 or 15,000 single family homes throughout the United States. So again, the team in India did a phenomenal job at underwriting and asset managing those 14 plus thousand single family homes. So as a, when you look at our history, being spun out of Auckland, which is a well-regarded servicer in the, in the non-agency space, to today's still around and, and utilized in different ways. The asset management team had a tremendous experience in, in managing and acquiring and valuing non-performing mortgages, as well as single family residents. So that's the history of the company. When I was brought aboard back in, in May of last year, when we repivoted the business model, we took that DNA, the DNA of managing real estate and valuing non-performing mortgages and, and, and understanding um, single family industry. We took that and we rolled that into private credit. Okay, because we had the DNA, the private credit space, alternative asset space is booming. You know, that's a space that's multi-trillions in size. It's grown exponentially, you know, since the great financial crisis. If you look at every well-known blue chip money manager out there from the PIMCOs to the KKRs to the Apollos of the world, they're all raising tremendous amounts of money in the alternative income space. If you look at insurance companies, the, the predominant money is getting deployed in alternatives. There's this extra incremental revenue there, but it's also a shift in our economy. You know, the, the, the financing rules and, and frameworks were built 40 and 50 years ago. And today, our economy today is far different than it was 30, 40 years ago, number one. Number two is we have, and everybody knows this to be well known, there's a huge underserved market in small and medium-sized business owners. So that is a massive market. And that's what we service. You know, we come out, and frankly, we originate the service and provide liquidity to the underserved market, to the small, medium-sized businesses that drive the economy in the United States. And we have, on another end, we have tremendous amount of liquidity from these insurance companies and from these from these money managers in the alternative space. In fact, we originate and distribute into that market. So, 
All right. We have like a thousand different rabbit holes to go down here right now. But I, I mean, first, I want to start off on, you know, you, you said the line that the alternative asset space is booming. You know, for those that aren't familiar, I'd love to better understand from you why. Well, look, it's it's easy. It's it's pretty simple. It's easy to go into the conforming conventional space. It's been it's been done. It's been papered 50 million ways. It's been out there for 40, 50 years. You have. For example, Fannie, Freddie, you know, they define the rules and regulations for conventional credit on the resi side. So as you look at the conventional market, whether it's in conventional uh, commercial real estate, single family real estate, or just uh, unsecured loans, that's well-defined. So it's easy to, to, to take that and run with that, which makes it a commodity, which makes it you know, everything very easy and everybody goes after it. The area that's not well-defined has been effectively the, the the underserved market, the small, medium-sized borrowers. And so with that being said, it takes, you know, frankly, it's, it takes a little bit more experience and knowledge to to wrap your head around their credit risk. Okay. And what water runs the, the route of least resistance. Okay. So everybody's gonna go, let's go chase the easy. Let me go chase the prime borrower, like JP Morgan, they do a phenomenal job going after that, that, that prime FICO, that major corporation, that the AAA borrower, and that's what they do well. And so you can go compete with JP because the rules are set there and you go after it. Or you got a huge market for the, the borrowers that are not triple you know, rated. They're not, you know, multi-billion dollar international corporations. These are smaller mom and pop businesses. And so it's just it's it's a little more work. It's it's blue collar in the finance industry. I look at it as it's much more blue collar. I was raised blue collar. And so I'm not afraid to roll my sleeves up and and, and get after it. So Absolutely. So another another rabbit hole that I wanted to go down was, you know, looking at kind of the, you know, macroeconomic look and how that affects Altasource. So probably the most obvious question that you get, like ad nauseum, I hope you're not sick of answering it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, how, how has the change in interest rates impacted the business at all? Well, again, that's a great question. And I love that you brought that up. The most interest rate sensitive space is the conventional market. Okay, so that's a, that's the space that gets ripped whipped around. For us, we do two things. We're not in the consumer space. We're in the business purpose space. Okay, number one. Number two is we deal with small to medium-sized business owners. They're less rate sensitive. They're more about execution. So one is um, they are less sensitive to to spread and rate risk. Number two is um, that space in the business purpose side is there's such a shortage, such a shortage of, of liquidity that it hasn't affected us. Effectively, the demand on, on the alternative side in the business purpose space is tremendous. With rates tripling, it hasn't affected our business. So even though we're building out, we've, we, we see the demand through our calls, through our emails, through our, our marketing and lead generation efforts. We still see a tremendous amount of demand. And, and frankly, um, the, I think the weak have gotten weeded out, the strong, medium-sized and, and small business owners are strong as ever. So for us, the demand's there. Um, we see it, it. It hasn't really faded. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's the difference. Gotcha. Hey, Jason, what, what does the competitive landscape really look like for Altasource for the origination that you're competing for? So look, to my knowledge, and I've done a lot of research on this, and I've heard this from other people, we're the only public company out there that originates and distributes alternative credit in the, you know, the business purpose space. So what's the competitive landscape? There's a, there's a, there's a handful and the handful is there's probably 10 to 20 originators of private credit on the real estate side, but they're, 
90% of them are owned by money managers or hedge funds. So they're captives. So effectively what they are is they're captive and they feed a bucket of capital. Okay. We, we're the only public company out there doing this and we were not owned by a money manager hedge fund. We distribute to the best source of capital. So the landscape is yes, there's competition out there. Um, you're still in like the early stages of the industry growing. And our model, in my view, in my experience, I've been around is pretty unique. Like we we're the only public company that we can distribute openly to whoever we want to sell to. So at the end of the day, we're constantly searching out the best partners, the best source of capital, and we're going to flow to where that's at. We're not held captive by a, you know, household money manager. So. Gotcha. Hey, you also mentioned, you also mentioned in the opening when we were talking about the history that, you know, you came into the company in May of last year. What was your background prior to joining the business? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So long history in, in mortgages and in resi. So prior four years, I spent at Morgan Stanley. I was a senior executive sitting across the residential business purpose business. So I sat across trading, warehousing, securitization, even investment banking. And my job was to help reposition and build that business. We had, before that, I built the business from scratch at Nomura. So I was hired in 2012. I started out as a whole loan trader building the whole loan desk, um, but effectively morphed into building the entire business. So that was built from scratch. So when I got there, we had zero balance sheet, zero trades done in the last probably four years. When I left in 2018, we had a four and a half billion dollar balance sheet. We did 65 securitizations that year and we made over 200 million in revenue. So from scratch, built that business. Now, obviously I had a ton of help. You know, I hired some, I hired and moved over some extremely talented people and us as a team built it, but that was my business, my business plan. We built it. So, so that was my prior 10 years. Um, prior to that, I worked for some small shops. I worked for Cannon Fitzgerald before that some small shops. I had my own mortgage shop. So I ran from, from two, 1998 to 2006, I held, had my own origination shop. So that taught me a lot about small businesses and how to run and how they function. Uh, it, it taught me a lot about, about people. Um, it, it, it taught me a tremendous amount. So it, it was my, you know, firsthand experience of getting an MBA by doing it real, you know, real time. And then prior to that, I worked for a CPA firm, um, public accountant. It was uh, for a mid-sized, smaller firm. It's phenomenal experience. I got to deal with small mom and pop businesses. So at the end of the day today, when I look at my experience, I've worked at the Morgan Stanley of the world. I worked at Nomura as a world. Nomura is one of the top at Asian investment banks. Morgan Stanley is obviously a global name, but I've also worked for small shops. I've had my own shop. So I've been fortunate enough to have a complete composite experience and I work with, you know, at the accounting firm with, with small, medium-sized businesses up to Morgan Stanley working with the biggest accounts like a PIMCO and a Blackstone and KKR. So I've, I've worked the full spectrum. I've been in boardrooms with large region, regional banks. And so I have a pretty broad experience that's very focused on real estate and, uh, and mortgages. And hopefully know, that helps. Yeah, that was your full background. Of course it yeah. helps. Yeah. Um, so, you know, talking, going back to another, you know, talking macro a little bit more about trends and what's going on in the industry, like speaking of real estate specifically, you know, you mentioned how the rise in rates hasn't necessarily impacted the business all that, all that much, or not the rise rates, but there's the changing in rates hasn't, has impacted the business all that much. But in terms of just the general consensus regarding real estate and the, the looming, you know, whatever, every, you know, talking head is saying that we're going to recession, recession in the next six to 12 months, whether it's a hard or soft landing, who knows, you know, how, how do any of those trends affect Alta source at all? Well, they do. And look, look, to be frank, 
um, we're going through a very volatile market. Okay. And it's going to be volatile for a while. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows where, where it's headed, but it's, it's definitely going to be volatile for in my view the next 24 months. With that being said, you know, volatility, you make money. Okay. So, so volatility does wash out the weaker and creates opportunity. How does it affect us? I think under, I think underlying what's very important is the economy has held up in employment. So the fact that employment's held strong has been one of the biggest drivers. So yes, you have inflation. Yes, you're dealing with uh, headwinds in the housing industry, but there's ways through you know data analytics and underwriting to mitigate those risks. There's ways to lend into that market and and and, and prevent yourself from getting hurt. So I think number one, the fact that employment is still strong in the U.S. relative from a historical standard, massive. You know that's that's that benefits everybody. Okay, number one. Number two. In our space, in, in the business purpose space, there's a housing shortage. Okay, so if you're building homes, you're taking homes and, and you're modernizing them, there's a tremendous amount of demand still for housing. Okay, so you're going from two years ago, year and a half ago, where you had the historically lowest rates in the history of mortgages, to now you're in a more normalized rate environment. So it's not like this is 1981 and rates are at 14%. You're talking about rates of five and a half to six and a half percent. You still can buy a mortgage. Maybe you don't, maybe you can't get a 4,000 square foot house. But if somebody's building and taking a 2,000 square foot house, making it to 2,500 or 3,000 square foot house, there's demand there for it. So for us, um, I, I think the economy's the economy, even though we're in a, in a volatile market, um, it's still pretty healthy overall relative. Now, if we had unemployment at 10, 12 percent, a different story. So 100 percent. So another, another question that I had for you, and this was a note that, um, you know, Brett, uh, sorry, uh, uh, James sent me your your IR firm from Hayden IR um, regarding um, this buy side research report or a memo from Lake Cornelia Research Management. Um, I'm not sure exactly what date this was published, but you sent me this quote that uh, from this research report saying that the platform can likely handle, and I quote here, the platform can likely handle over one and a half billion a year of originations with no investment and a little more is needed to handle five plus billion of paper per year. AAMC is targeting uh, 600 plus million of originations this year with an exit rate of well over a billion. If they are remotely successful, we see the potential for $200 plus stock in the next 12 to 18 months with more coming end quote. Uh, so some serious numbers we're talking about there, right? So, I mean, in your opinion, what do you think enables that scale and is a little additional investment needed from what you can tell us? Yeah, look, that was that gentleman did a great write-up. So we appreciate his work, um, independent of us, to be honest. So um, when you look at us, again, I mentioned Bangalore. We have an incredible team in Bangalore. You know, we have effect, very effective labor costs over there. We have a very talented team. So when we first got the platform going, we right-sized it to those numbers you're talking. When you start talking about 600 million a year, a billion a year, you know, when we added the the people, the talent that we added in Bangalore, that was based on that kind of volume. So when you look at the management team we've hired here in the States, the, the team we've hired in Bangalore and, and grown, it's built to, to support those numbers, that 600 to a billion, billion and a half. We, you know, yes, there might be some minor hires here and there, but we're built to hit those numbers. Okay. And the beauty is in this environment, when you're dealing with a challenging market, our talent base is pretty cost effective. So in a build out, we, we happen to be building out through a challenging market, um, but yet we have the staffing. So yes, we're positioned to hit those numbers. It's more about doing it right. You know, at this point, 
from a management standpoint, my team's incredibly experienced. They've been around the real estate mortgage space for 20 plus years. We would rather roll it out properly than turn it on and cause a lot of pain. So what we've done more so is we've hired the staffing, we're putting out the processes in place and we're turning around and lagging into it. So we do it right. We build a good reputation. Look, we make mistakes. We're not we're not impervious to making mistakes. We're making mistakes, but we, let's let's do that at today's scale because another. I'm impatient, so trust me. I'm itching to step on the gas. Okay, but I'd rather make the mistakes now, fix it, fix the processes, and add a little more gas and a little bit more gas. And the next thing you know, you have a well-oiled machine. So we feel pretty good where we're at. We feel that our operations are right sized. We feel like we're unique in the United States. That we have a tremendous talent base in Bangalore. That's very, very more than competent to, relative to our peers. Um, and I have a great management team. So I, yes, we, we feel we're right-sized. I, you know, frankly, my time at Morgan Stanley and more, I've been in pretty much every operation out there. I've been under the hood. I know what our competitors are doing. I think they're great. There's some great, great shops out there, but I, I think we're, we're, we're right-sized. Absolutely. All right. So playing, so I got a couple devil's advocate questions, you know, for you. So uh, you b- bear with me here. So you mentioned that, you know, we're all human. We make mistakes sometimes when running the business. And uh, this is a new question that I love asking management teams on here that um, uh, I, I think it was uh, Josh Womack or Tom Carey. Uh, I give them credit for this one. Um, what, what would you say? What was the mistake that you made in, in, in since coming on in May of 2022 uh, within the business that you recognized? And then how did you? I don't know, not, not necessarily make up for it or, or what did you learn from that? No, look, I mean, like I'll give, I'll give you a couple of mistakes. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much experience you have, you make mistakes. So when we were building out our team in Bangalore and we have a, a talented team in Bangalore, we hired people, but we hired people to their hours versus the U.S. hours. So when we did our, our initial build out, all the people we hired was based on hours in India versus hours in the U.S. So... <laughs> You have, you have I don't a, I don't mean a lot, but I no, but, but yeah. So what happens yeah. is as time goes as production picks up, you have a gap in those hours. So we realized quickly that we added a lot of talented people, but had we do it over again, we would be hiring people based on the US hours. So that was a simple mistake, but it's a big mistake because then you start having gaps. So yes, at two o'clock in the morning, US time, Eastern Standard Time, they're working, but at four o'clock in the afternoon, they're not working and you need to get something done. So that was a that was a major snafu that I'll take full responsibility for. Okay. Um, to, you know, that's number one. Number two, you know, another snafu is you, you have peers in the space, you look what they do and you, you, you look at your underwriting and you try to like make sure your market, well, not everybody in the market, no matter who they are, and you, I'm not going to mention names, but these are big investment banks. Not everybody in the market does it right. So you got to make sure when you're comping, you're comping to the right competitor versus somebody who doesn't do it right. So, you know, one of the things we did in the beginning is we, we did some type of, um, uh, parallel analysis against a competitor who now is just major street firm who is out of the business and the reason they're out of the business and it was a waste of time you know and, and so then the day we made those are those are two big mistakes that, that cost us some time um but at the same time i think we've done it we we pivot so quickly relative to other people um like we, the moment we notice a mistake we make the change we rip the band-aid off and make the change yes. So another question that I ask everybody on here is, you know, look, you've been public now for a while. You've been in you've been in the the CEO role for about a year now. You know, you've done a, I'm sure you've done a few investor calls, the presentations, the whole the whole dog and pony show. What would you say investors maybe still get confused about 
when thinking about Alta Source? And maybe maybe there's some frequently asked questions you get. We can yeah. Look, look, I mean, first off, this is a fantastic topic. So when I got here, I was told, you know, not to do a lot of PR, not to to, to go out to the public. And so what happens is when you don't clarify and you're not transparent, the market has to interpret what they think. And so um, so fast forward, I realized quickly that was a mistake. And so we, we started telegraphing who we are, what we're doing, because we are a unique model and you need to get people benchmarks and investors benchmarks. So so today, a common mistake out there is, is what you referenced earlier about our modeling or size, 600 million, a billion and a half, how much we make. So we haven't really put out yet. We're not going to put out forward guidance, forward guidance, but we haven't put out um, like a model. Like we plan to put out a model saying once our business is normalized, here's what it looks like from a financial standpoint. So that's a classic example where if we don't, if we're not transparent and we're not putting out general framework, how to understand our business from a financial standpoint and how big the market is, people are left guessing. So it's been it's been very important for us to pick up on the fact that we need to be transparent. We need to provide understanding and framework. So that's a classic example. And I think that's a perfect question because one of the things we're going to do here shortly is that we, we do have a plan of putting out once our business normalizes, here's what it looks like from a revenue, from a top down, here's the different channels, here's what flows to the bottom line. So this way, instead of people behind the scenes coming up with their own model and they're guessing, we live and breathe it. So we're not going to put out forward guidance, but we are going to say, hey, you know, once we're normalized, this is what this business looks like. So that's a classic example where uh, transparency and, and, and communication, communication is so important. And, and, and I'm a big believer in communication. And we've learned that a lot. I've learned that a lot since I've been here. You're going to say, like, I'm glad you changed the mindset because I'm like, oh, good. That's that's why we're talking today, pretty much. (laughs) So, you know, uh, another question that I ask everybody on here, and I think you've covered it pretty openly, and I got to give you a lot of credit. And and it's that's one of my favorite um, aspects of management teams is when you're very open about, you know, how things can go wrong, how things can fail, mistakes like that. People want to hear that because we're all human. We're all real. Things happen. Right. You know, so one more question along those lines, you know, in your opinion, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks like where all this could potentially go to hell? Well, again, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, if unemployment goes to 10, 12%, that affects everybody. I, I, I don't care if you're JP Morgan, I don't care who you are. So, so unemployment's always a huge factor. And uh, I don't care what side you are on the politics line. No one wants to see anybody unemployed. There's a lot of social damage. There's a lot of economic damage. So, so unemployment's always a risk. Okay. Number one. Number two is I've traded and ran businesses in a distressed market. So during the great financial crisis, I traded non-performing mortgages. I've been on both sides of the cycle. Okay, so so one of the important things for us is to make sure that we develop countercyclical businesses and that we're ready to pivot, because if it does happen, there's there's going to be a spike in unemployment at some point. If there's a disaster, we have to be able to survive for our shareholders and pivot and make money. We have a talent base. So when you look at India, you look at Bangalore, look at my management team, who, you know, we're as much as we develop younger, talented individuals and very intelligent individuals, we have a very senior experienced team that's that's been in both sides of the market. So. You know, once we get our, our regular way origination private credit business going, we're going to start working on some of this, the counter cyclical businesses because it will be inevitable. And so we are working on some other businesses that eventually that are counter cyclical because otherwise a lot of people are just they're a one trick pony. OK, and when the market pivots, if you can't pivot with it, you know, you get smoked. So, yep. you know, so with that, so downside is a change in unemployment, a massive change in unemployment would affect us. Um effectively government regulation. I don't care what industry you are. 
government regulation can always affect you. You know, so the places we spent, the, the, where we, you know, where we uh, bit act, I'm sorry, where we do business is less regulated. It's it's business to business, so there's less oversight. And with that being said, <clears throat> that helps us because we're on the consumer side, you have a lot more regulation, and so we're on the business to business side, and, and that helps us from a, a business standpoint. Got it. And if you don't mind me asking, you know, you mentioned that you know you will be you will be working on some counter cyclical businesses. I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on that, or or are you kind of keeping that close to the chest? It's okay either way. Yeah, I, I look, anybody knows me knows my background knows that I understand the real estate mortgage market and distressed market. Um, I can't get into the detail. Just I can't. Let's just say, trust me. It's it's Leave on it the there. it's on the radar. You know. Leave it there. No problem. So. Another question that I have for you, you know, like I said, you came in the business May 2022, you know, for you, in your opinion, where do you want to see this company in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that'll get you there? Absolutely. That's a great question. And, and so so we're going to have multiple business lines and when I say business line, different companies. OK, so you might, if you ask me three years from now, we have seven, eight companies. Um, we're not 100% in real estate. We're doing other projects. We're doing alternative credit, maybe in, in corporate credit, middle markets credit. It could be, you know, anywhere along the financials chains, like merchant cash advance, cash advances. We could, you never know. Maybe we go into consumer space and unsecured. Maybe we go into, and there's so many areas that you got to take a business model from where it was built 30 years ago and it's changed today. So I look at us as having seven to eight companies. We have an asset management company we're building right now that's going to be benefited from all our different verticals. So, you know, where do I see us? I, I'm hoping to have us, you know, at a pretty large revenue base, diversified among seven, eight companies. You know, if we had the ability to spin one out or sell one just to prove concept, we do it. So I, I, I don't, the business plan was never here to do one private lender and that's all we're going to do. The reality is it's private credit across different asset classes and we're going to be opportunistic. It could be middle markets, corporate debt, for example, completely different than first lien, single family, resi. So you know, we're going to be a private credit business that's going to have ancillary businesses that feed off each other. So, gosh. So another question I have for you, and only a couple more, but, you know, like I said, your company's been public for a while, been in the been in the chair. You know, how much, if at all, have your shareholders influenced some of your decision-making process or given you feedback that's guided some of the decisions that you've made? Tremendous. So again, when I first got here, I was told, you know, not to talk, not to, not to you know, just go do my thing. Um, the reality is, I would say, I started talking to shareholders on a regular basis, probably in October or November of last year. I, I would say even say November of, of 2022. <clears throat> and I started talking to across the spectrum of shareholders. I got tremendous, tremendous insight and guidance. I didn't always agree. At the same time, it was fantastic seeing the, the interactive discussion. And I got plenty of good information and good intel. So what I found quickly is forget about my my relationships in in, in life. They, they've given me great, great advice. There's a lot of shareholders here who've been with the company for a while who had great insight. Didn't take everything, but I listened to everybody. So I would say from from you know November on, I on a regular basis, I talked to a lot of shareholders every quarter. And it was it's been incredibly helpful. Didn't always agree with every bit of advice, but uh it's been fantastic. So that was a huge learning lesson. When you say what what have you learned? I learned to engage with your shareholder base, you listen to them, 
you know, and, and that was probably one of my biggest growth areas was talking to shareholders and getting that feedback. So, you know, it's a trip that you, in talking with share and CEOs and I'm doing this 10 plus years now is you don't realize how sophisticated retail can be. And oh. like, yeah, I, they'll I, take, yeah. they'll take you to task, man. Oh, I got some shareholders that are whip smart. Whip smart. Um, look, at the end of the day, in what we do, I'm definitely an expert. Like I, like I, I would never say that ten years ago. Now, so yeah, I, I know I am. But there's still some in t- very talented people who are shareholders, and I've learned. I've learned Extremely a lot. Extremely talented. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've, it's been great. I actually look forward to those calls because those are calls where I can engage. There's you know back and forth, and and typically I walk away. And if I take all those calls together. I, I just grow as a, I grow as a CEO. So it's been one of my favorite parts of this job is for me in life, you know, I want to grow. Like I want to continue to grow. And since I've been here, I've grown. And my prior stop, stop, yeah, I learned, I learned how big banks work with sponsors and, you know, how they cater to the, you know, the Pemco's and the Blackstone's of the world. I get it. That's a sponsors bank. And I, and, and I learned how a small mortgage shop and how the, who they service here, I grown tremendously because, the shareholders, you know, public company and all that. So I, I've grown a lot in the last year. I, I say I've grown more in the last year than I have probably in the last seven, eight years of my career. Um, and a lot of it has to do with shareholder shareholder input. So very cool. Well, Jason, I I think that's a great place to end it. I mean, uh, what a I'm, I'm ready to go outside and smell the roses after that last comment. So, <laughs> <laughs> so with that, yeah. <laughs> Jason. Yeah. With that, where can our audience go and find more information on out-to-source asset management? Well, yeah, so you can look at our website. Our website definitely is, um, we updated the website. We we rolled out, it's a soft rollout, so I'm going to get stabbed here. Algent is one of our subsidiaries for the lending arm. So Algent is the, you can take a look at that website. And obviously, you know, go to our investor relations, shoot us an email. We're, we're pretty responsive to anybody who has any questions. So we invite it. I invite it. I love the interaction. I love any input, I'll, I'm absolutely open to it. So, very cool. Thanks, Bobby. Well, Jason, with that, yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. Yeah, sounds good, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.